All right, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. Studying through the book of James, the last month we find ourselves back in chapter 1, and I'll explain that here in just a minute. We're moving on to a new topic, but our main text today will be James chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. Now before I get into that text, uh, I want to kind of share with you some of my own journey over the last few months. So in July... As most of you know, I took a sabbatical. The elders blessed me with a time to, to rest up and to be renewed. And I shared with you my first Sunday back. I actually read the Bible for the first time in a long time without thinking, how can I teach this? I just got to read it just to be with God. And what happened organically during the month of July during my sabbatical was I started to read through the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature in the Old Testament, I think, technically is considered Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Job. But there's wisdom in Song of Songs. There's wisdom in the Psalms. And so I read Ecclesiastes. I read Song of Songs. I read through Proverbs slowly. And I read through the book of James. Do you know what Old Testament book the book of James is sometimes compared to? Any Any guesses? you're here in the first service, you would hopefully know it is Proverbs. James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. So my journey during sabbatical, reading through uh, the wisdom literature. Now I'll back up to May and June. I did a sermon series on anxiety, aka the disquieted soul. During that sermon series for two months, I tried to share with you my own personal examples of my own struggles with anxiety with my own disquieted soul. And for about a decade, I've had my own battles off and on with anxiety. And often when I would struggle with anxiety, like most people, we look for relief. We don't want to feel that way, whether it's physically or psychologically. So we look for relief. Well, during sabbatical, during the month of July, I don't know if you would remember this or not, but there was one day for the first half of the day where it wasn't just excruciatingly hot. Uh, It was kind of cloudy, rainy, and it stayed in the mid-70s until about noon. So on that day, I went on my back porch, and I was reading through Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8, which is the call of wisdom, wisdom's call. And as I was reading that, I, I had this thought in my mind, I guess you could say the Spirit prompted me to think this, but this question came to mind. What if instead of only seeking relief from anxiety, that I shifted my focus to pursue wisdom? You know, maybe that's what the Spirit was revealing to me during sabbatical, but through reading the wisdom literature. Maybe it's because I just happened to be in Proverbs chapter 8 that day. I'm not real sure. But seeking relief from anxiety is a good thing. We need that. But I believe God was calling me into a new stage in my journey to kind of be healed from a decade of anxiety, and and maybe it'll still be there some, but instead of just seeking relief, seek wisdom. And if I'm going to pursue and seek wisdom, what is wisdom? How would you define it? It's not that easy to define. Earlier this week, uh, Jason Shuttlesworth and Larry Robbins were up here working on our internet, and Jason was walking in the hallway. I was working on this, so I said, hey, Jason, what do you think wisdom is? He gave a couple answers. One of them, he said, easy, it's gray hair. And I thought, well, if that's what wisdom is, man, I, I have a good head start. I'm headed in the right direction because, you know, my hair's slowly going gray, sides and in the beard. 
Some of you like to point that out to me, and then people that I, I haven't seen in a while, that's usually the first thing they'll say is, wow, you're going gray. I'm like, yes, I know that. Thank you for pointing it out. But if that's what wisdom is, okay, I'm headed in the right direction, but obviously wisdom is more than just gray hair because just having gray hair doesn't make you wise. So is wisdom life experience? Well, I imagine that's what we mean when we say gray hair. Is you've lived long enough, you've gone through the trials of life, you've gained some experience from it, and now you have some wisdom to share to younger people. Maybe that's what we mean by life experience and wisdom. Is wisdom common sense? I have a six-year-old son who's sitting in the back whose head just popped up when I said that. And I talked to him about this this morning, so he knows I'm going to say it. But for the last probably three or four years, we've had a lot of conversations about common sense. Uh, if you have a, a young boy, maybe you've had that same conversation. They will run, they will jump, they will dive, they will do whatever it is without thinking about the consequences. They just go do it. And so we have conversations about common sense. I told him I was going to talk about that this morning, and he said, my common sense is broken. Now, he's just joking, but I had already prepared this in the sermon, and last night I watched him crash his bike at the park, and I thought he broke his leg. And again, common sense. Think before you do something. So to have wisdom, you've got to have a little bit of common sense. But we know that's not all wisdom is. What is wisdom? Is it knowledge? Got to have some knowledge if you're going to have wisdom. Sometimes we use the words wisdom and knowledge interchangeably. One commentator said that knowledge is the ability to take things apart. Wisdom is the ability to put them back together. So wisdom is the right use of knowledge. What is wisdom? Is it good judgment? Exercising good judgment. As I was researching this sermon, uh, I came across a story about a guy... I won't even say his name or get into all of this, but it happened in 2006. He was convicted of a crime. But he had a very high IQ. He was well known for his high IQ, and he was also well respected in his field of study. And then he's convicted of this crime, and one day at a press conference, his attorney said, just because you have a high IQ does not mean that you have good judgment. So having a high IQ does not mean wisdom, good judgment means wisdom. If we do something and make a good decision, sometimes we say that was a wise choice. If we do something foolish, we say that was not very wise. So what is wisdom? Is it all of these things mixed together? I haven't seen anybody looking down at their phone yet, but I imagine that somebody at some point when I'm asking what is wisdom would have Googled it. So if you Googled what is wisdom, this is what you're going to find. The quality of having experience, so that's that gray hair, life experience, doesn't always have to be just gray hair. It could be life experience, knowledge, and good judgment. You mix those things together, and I would throw in common sense, and then maybe you have a definition of wisdom. I like definitions. They help me. But if you wanted a, a biblical definition of what wisdom is, is it goes beyond just the intellect. It goes beyond just having head knowledge, and biblical wisdom has a practical element to it. Wisdom, according to the Bible, the, element of the, the practical element is to be able to live it out. And, and when James talks about wisdom, I believe that's what James has in mind, this practical element of wisdom. So let me remind you real quick. As we study through the book of James, the, the overall theme is to have a mature faith. It, uh, either grow into a fully mature faith or we have a maturing faith. And 
That's the overall theme. James presents several sub-themes along the way. One of those sub-themes is trials. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we spent three weeks on trials. We're going theme by theme rather than chapter by chapter. So if you're wondering how we went from chapter 5 last week and now we're back in chapter 1, this is why. Now we're moving on to the theme of wisdom. And I want to read chapter 1, verse 5 through 8 again. Spend a few minutes talking about this text. James chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So as I read through these four verses, and, and James, kind of like verse 2 through 4, he can say a little, but it really says a lot. It has high impact. So four verses here, but a very high impact. And I've read it multiple times, and I've struggled with understanding what tone to read this in. Because verse 5 sounds really happy and encouraging. Hey, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He's glad to give it to you. But then verse 6 through 8 seems to change tone. And it's like, but don't you doubt it for a second. If you do, you're double-minded and you're unstable in all you do. So as I've read through this, I've sensed those different tones. And I thought about it earlier this week. And to me, it's almost like James is your favorite uncle. And he's also your most intimidating coach. Just in four verses. In verse 5, very encouraging. I don't know if you have this aunt or uncle in your life or maybe some kind of family member that every time you see them, they're happy to see you, they bring you joy, and they have something encouraging to say. Hopefully you have somebody like that in your life. But then, that's how James is in verse 5. But then in verse 6 through 8, he moves into this like intimidating, no-nonsense kind of coach. Maybe you've had those coaches as well. They want what's best for for you and and from you and to draw that out of you, but they're not going to put up with any kind of nonsense. So James, in these four verses, serves as both the encourager and the challenger. And we need both in our lives. And James is going to serve both roles here. And so let's look at verse 5. He starts with this word, lacks. If any of you lacks wisdom, well, that connects with verse 4. So he's, it's a catch word. He's connecting the two. At the end of verse 4, this is where we get our theme for the overall series, going, talking about persevering through trials so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Well, then verse 5, he says, but if you lack wisdom. So he connects the two verses that way. James does that throughout his letter. And if we're going to grow into a mature faith, we cannot lack wisdom. James knows that. To have a maturing or a mature faith, you have to have wisdom. So if you lack wisdom, what should you do? Well, he says, pray about it. Ask God for wisdom. Now, connecting the theme of trials and wisdom, when we are going through a trial normally in life, what do we pray for? Well, I think we pray for help. We pray for relief from whatever it is that we're going through. We pray maybe for a miracle. If we're praying for somebody else that's going through a trial, please, Lord, heal them. And all those things are good things to pray for. But James says when you're going through a trial, pray for wisdom. That's what we need. We need wisdom. Why do we need to ask for wisdom? 
Well, wisdom is not something that we can achieve just through human effort. We could try really hard to be wise, but wisdom truly is a gift from God. It's something that He gives us. That's why we need to ask for it. Later in chapter 1, James talks about the Father of the heavenly lights and how He gives us these good and perfect gifts. We talked about that a few weeks ago. One of those good and perfect gifts that God wants to give us is wisdom, but it comes down from heaven. So there's an, a part of wisdom that it's not just us achieving it, it's, it's God blessing us with wisdom. So pray to God, ask for wisdom, and He will give it to you generously without finding fault. He's not going to belittle you. He's not going to make you feel silly or stupid because you don't have wisdom. He is glad to give it to you. He will give it to all. There's that favorite uncle that I'm talking about, that encouragement. God is glad to give you wisdom. But then the tone changes a little bit in verse 6, and it says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. So now he's going from you know, the favorite uncle to the no-nonsense coach. Now he's going he's to go from being an encourager to a challenger. But let me tell you something. God's glad to give you that wisdom, but do not doubt. Well, doubt... That's a really large topic. In fact, doubt is a trigger word, in my opinion. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I imagine that a lot of people in this room right now, you've struggled with doubt at some point in your life. Maybe. I know I've gone through a period of doubt. Uh, I know many of you have, and sometimes you, you come out on the other side better for it. Some people don't always wind up getting through doubt. They just stay in doubt their whole lives. But if you've ever struggled with any kind of doubt, well, you're not alone in that. I'll use some biblical examples from the Gospels. You have John the Baptist. You know, you know John the Baptist. He was the, the forerunner for Jesus, paving the way. Jesus' cousin. But in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect somebody else? That's doubt. John the Baptist is doubting why. Well, he's rotting away in Herod's prison cell, and he's disappointed with Jesus. John's disappointed that Jesus hasn't come through for him, that Jesus hasn't come to rescue him, so he has a moment of doubt. Or then you have this dad in Mark chapter 9. Y'all remember this story? I'm just kind of spanning over some stories from the Gospels here, but in Mark chapter 9, there's a dad who has a son with an impure spirit. And his parents, we know we would do anything for our children. So this dad comes to Jesus' disciples and he says, can you please heal him? And they can't do it. Jesus, meanwhile, is up on the mountain, on the mountain of transfiguration. When he comes back down, the dad comes to Jesus. Your disciples couldn't do this, but if you can do something, will you help me? And Jesus focuses on this word, if, that the dad uses. If I can do something, anything is possible for him who believes. And in Mark 9, 24, the dad says... I do believe, but help my unbelief. I love that statement. It's real honest and raw. Throughout church history, that becomes known as the doubter's prayer. He's saying, I believe, but I'm a mixture of both faith and doubt. I do believe in you, Jesus, but there is some doubt. So please help my unbelief. So you could use John the Baptist as an example. This dad in Mark chapter 9, you could use Peter as an example. You remember in Matthew 14, Peter walks on water. He does something that none of the other disciples do. He's walking towards Jesus, but then Peter begins to sink because he sees the wind. 
Jesus lifts Peter out of the water. What does Jesus say to Peter in Matthew 14? Well, he doesn't say, hey, Peter, you did a great job. You took a leap of faith. You came towards me. You walked on water. At least I want to praise you for that. Instead, Jesus says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? So Peter had his little struggles and moments with doubt. Even though he had pretty bold confidence, he also had some doubt. Now you could use Thomas as an example. What's Thomas's nickname throughout church history? You know this. Doubting Thomas, right? John chapter 20, John misses a week, which I always say this. If you skip out, you miss out. Uh, Thomas was missing. He doesn't see Jesus. He doubts the resurrection for one week, and then he sees Jesus, and then he believes. But forever, Thomas becomes known as Doubting Thomas for 2,000 years. Now, Thomas believes, and he goes on to do great things for the kingdom of God, and even is killed for his faith later on, according to church history. He's forever known as Doubting Thomas. And then you could just use the disciples as another example of doubt. In Matthew chapter 28, at the end of Matthew 28, what do we call that section? Anybody know? We, you know, missionaries use it. We talk about it. It's called the Great Commission is what we call it. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But one of the things that we often miss, or at least we don't talk about very often, is that when those disciples met Jesus on that mountain, Matthew gives us a strange little detail. It said, some worshipped him, but some doubted. So even as they meet the resurrected Jesus before he ascends to heaven, they're seeing him, but there's doubt mixed in. So if you've ever struggled with doubt, you're not alone. We're in good company. Thomas, Peter, the dad in Mark chapter 9, John the Baptist, the disciples as a whole. I mean, you can go on and on. There's many people who have wrestled with doubt and come out on the other side stronger because of it and then wound up becoming great teachers of our faith. And there's a lot of other examples I can use, but I'll move on from there. What does James mean by doubt here in verse 6? Like I said, loaded topic. That's a trigger word. You must believe and not doubt. Well, he's not talking about, I don't think James is talking about faith in God. So apologetics, that's a, a good study. Uh, there's a lot of people that struggle with whether or not they actually believe in God. So you could do an apologetic study about how we can believe in God, how we can believe the Bible is reliable, and you could get into so many different topics under the umbrella of apologetics but James, I don't think, is launching us into a study of apologetics here. What the doubt that James is talking about in verse 6 is doubting in God's provisions. You need wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you gladly, but don't doubt. Don't doubt that God will provide. You should believe. You should have a bold confidence that God will actually give you wisdom if you ask for it. But if you doubt, he says, you're like, like a wave of the sea that's blown and tossed by the wind. Uh, sometimes we read a verse like this and we think a storm going out in the ocean and a bad storm, high you know, winds and the waves are real high, but that's not what James means here. When he uses this language, this is just the regular instability of the sea. Constantly, the sea is changing waves based on the wind strength and wind direction. Like up one minute, down the next, all over the place. And James is saying that's what it's like. 
if you doubt. You're up one minute, you're down the next. You oscillate between faith and doubt, and it's not going to work. John Orberg is this great Christian thinker and, and author of, of the past, and uh, maybe still writing some books, but one, one day, many years ago, he told a story about his friend named Jimmy. Jimmy took his family on vacation to Mexico. And one day they were out there swimming, playing in the ocean. His son, Davey, is swimming. He's watching his son, but his wife and his other siblings or his other uh, kids and cousins and everybody, they're just playing in the sand, having a good time, not paying attention. He notices that Davey is starting to drown. So he takes off running to go save his son. His son had been caught in a riptide. And Ortberg points out that Jimmy is an Olympic athlete, so he could, he could swim. You know, he could do this. He, he's a great athlete, but he gets out to his son. He gets caught in the riptide. So they're out there trying to keep their head above water. The waves are crashing over them, and whatever they're doing, frantically trying to swim back to shore, it's not working. And nobody's even noticing that it's happening. They're drowning, and nobody knows it. Finally, his cousin notices. And so instead of trying to swim out to them and also getting caught in this riptide, the cousin, who knows a little bit about the ocean, walked out to the nearest sandbar and walked close to him and held out his arms and he said, come to me. Come, like he's yelling at them, getting their attention. Swim this way. Their instinct was to try to fight through it and swim to the shore. But that wasn't working for him. So their cousin brilliantly says, no, come here, go the opposite way, but when you get here, you'll find rest. You can stand up, you can breathe. And so they did that. They followed their cousin's lead and they survived it. And one of the things that John Ortberg was pointing out when he told this story is, you know, you can kind of picture our way and God's way. When we're trying to swim our own way, it's like swimming against the tide. It just doesn't really work. When we're swimming in doubt and we're asking God for something, but we're doubting whether or not God will provide it, it's like swimming against that riptide. But the cousin, he said, is kind of like God standing there, come to me. Just follow my way. So James is saying, if you doubt, you're like a wave of the, the sea that's kind of blown and tossed about. And that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. In verse 7. The very fact that you doubt undermines your request for wisdom. In verse 8, he says, Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Again, this is that, to me, that no-nonsense kind of coach. He's like, if you doubt, you're, you're double-minded. This is an interesting word because many people believe that James coined the phrase. We don't really see it anywhere else. James almost makes up a word here, and he uses it again later in James chapter 4 and verse 8. We translate it as double-minded. Some people say you could translate it as double-souled. It's like a split soul. It's like you have one foot in one world and one foot in another world. It reminds me of the old story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I think it's, it's so familiar, you know, you probably have a somewhat of a familiarity with this story, but the, the basic idea is you have... One guy who's torn between good and evil within him. And there's that Dr. Jekyll part of him that's a good person in the community, a peaceable man, but then there's that evil side of him, Mr. Hyde, who loves violence and fleshly desires and evil desires. 
And he's battling both men within him. Which one is going to win, even if he tries to repress the evil part of it? And I think we could probably all identify with that, with that double-mindedness to one degree or another. Because to be double-minded, to be double-souled, it's that old argument of the flesh and the spirit, which Paul talks a lot about. Or Jesus talks about the light and the darkness. Both James and John talk about following the path of the Lord or following the world. James is talking about faith or doubt. So instead of having a double-minded focus, we need a singular-minded focus, a singular focus on Jesus. And at the end of verse 8 right there, he says, if you doubt, you are not only double-minded, but you're unstable in all that you do. I heard one person describe it this way. He said, you are consistently inconsistent throughout your lives. Man, I hope that doesn't describe me. Don't be proud of that if that describes you, that at least you're consistent in one area, but don't be consistently inconsistent. I told you at the beginning, as I read through the wisdom literature during my sabbatical time, uh, I was reading the book of Proverbs, and I read through James, and James and Proverbs have often been linked together. But if you read through James, not only can James be linked to Proverbs, James is also linked to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. One person said that there's at least 15 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in the book of James. So I thought about telling you to turn over to Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to go through the whole Sermon on the Mount, but that would be a really long sermon. So I'll just give you one little reference to the Sermon on the Mount as it connects with wisdom, as it connects with Proverbs, as it connects with James chapter 1 and verse 5 through 8. Kind of a closing thought to this is James is inviting us to pray for wisdom that we will also participate in. Pray for wisdom, don't doubt, believe it with a bold confidence that God will really give you that wisdom. But you're also going to be invited to participate in the wisdom that you're praying for. Okay, now I'll use the Sermon on the Mount as an example. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you remember how Jesus ends that sermon? He says, if you need prayers, come forward, let's stand and sing. That's not how he ends the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about a contrast between a wise and a foolish builder. Remember the VBS song, the wise man built his house upon the rock, foolish man built his house on the sand, the rains came. Uh, But the point of Jesus' teaching at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is not about that song. The point is Jesus is saying a wise person in his kingdom is somebody that hears what he's teaching and puts it into practice. A foolish person is somebody who hears what he's teaching and does not put it into practice. So the end of Jesus' most well-known sermon, something that James relies on a lot as he's writing this letter, is maybe Jesus' definition of what wisdom is, is wisdom is the difference between knowing and actually doing. Because Jesus believes that everything that he taught, he's saying you'll really believe it if you put it into practice. So I talked about doubt earlier And some of you may be thinking, I don't doubt at all. I've never struggled with doubt. I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's great. But do you really trust Jesus with the way that you live? You read the Sermon on the Mount. You read the book of James. They give us the way of wisdom. And there's an expectation not to just have head knowledge or intelligence 
but to actually put it into practice in the way that you live. So in that sense, as we talk about mature faith, mature faith is wisdom lived out on a daily basis. Later in James chapter 3, he's going to say, who is wise and understanding among you? He asked that question. And we're going to look at that next week. But the one who is wise, according to James chapter 3, is the one who lives it out with good conduct, with deeds done in humility, showing their wisdom. So this wisdom that James says to pray for, he's also going to tell us that we need to participate in it. So this morning, and that's my concluding thought, we're going to pray for wisdom that we're also going to participate in. And so we're going to offer an invitation right now. Uh, And if you're like me, you probably struggle with living out this wisdom on a daily basis. And if that's the case, there is grace here. We want to preach God's truth, but we also have grace. And we know that we all stumble. And so we want to help each other. And if we can help you by praying for you, by talking to you, by encouraging you somehow, come see one of us and talk to us during this invitation song. If you've struggled with doubt and you're ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ, put your full trust in Him, be baptized into Christ, come see one of us, come talk to us. Please respond to this invitation if you need to in any way, and I want to invite you to stand and we'll continue to sing. Would you be free from the burden?